This is a story of sorts, the podcast mostly about bookish stuff. Hello everyone, Karina here. On this episode, I chat with JD Jang about her debut urban fantasy novel, Monkey Round. Have a listen. JD, welcome to a story of sorts. Thank you so much. Tell us a little bit about yourself. I'm a writer, shockingly enough. <laughs> uh, I live in San Francisco and um, and write primarily about San Francisco. <laughs> and um, and I've worked for a very long time as a nonprofit um, administrator, cultural worker, and activist in the Bay Area. Monkey Around is your debut urban fantasy novel. Can you reveal a bit of it to us? Sure. So Monkey Around is uh, what's known as a paranormal detective story. And our quote unquote detective is Maya McQueen, who is a young woman uh, a few years out of college who works as a barista at the local supernatural sanctuary slash cafe. And she also uh, does side gigs for her boss who is a, a magic user. And she herself is a shapeshifter, an unlimited shapeshifter, but she tends to fall into the shape of a monkey as a default. And she is an orphan who doesn't know her origins and uh, doesn't know anything except that she turns into an Asian monkey and looks somewhat Asian uh, in her human form. She is also an activist. She, this all keeps her very busy and she's running around the Bay Area when she starts finding the bodies of shapeshifters who have had their souls sucked out. While she's doing all of these things and, and, uh, and doing her many, many jobs, she has to try to figure out who is killing shapeshifters and also help her biggest crush um, convince his little sister to leave the gang that she's just joined. So it's, uh, it's kind of complicated. It's a little bit complicated, the plot, but um, there's a lot of action and um, a lot of non-Western supernatural creatures because the Bay Area is full of um, people from non-Western cultures, immigrant communities and so forth. And I wanted to reflect those in the book. I think the main char character is just super fun, to be honest. She is just oh, so relatable. You. Because in some ways she is kind of so lost, but she is also so cool. Yeah, I, I think she is really relatable. <laughs> How did the idea to write Monkey Around present itself to you? I had been reading, binging actually, a lot of urban fantasy series. And I love urban fantasy. But urban fantasy in the States is uh, overwhelmed by European um, mythologies and uh, European... Um, European supernatural creatures, particularly vampires and, and werewolves, and and fae, fae are British Isles, werewolf is Western European, and vampires are, are Central European. But it's all European, and um, and it's it's gotten a little bit you know, witches, demons sometimes, but it's gotten a little bit repetitive. And um, there's this whole world full of mythologies that, um, particularly the ones that I grew up with, and the ones that the people I know in the Bay Area grew up with that just aren't being used in urban fantasy. And I thought, you know, if you, if there really were supernatural creatures in the world, um, and if there really were supernatural creatures in the Bay Area, they wouldn't be primarily vampires and werewolves. They would mm -hmm. be creatures from all over the world who followed their own population of humans uh, into 
immigrant enclaves and you would mm-hmm. have immigrant supernatural creatures as well. And um, since the Bay Area is one of the most diverse regions in the world and um, Port of Oakland is the one of the top five busiest ports in the country, the creatures would be coming through Oakland like crazy. So, um, so I thought that, uh, you know, that was one impulse was to, to reflect that and, and give uh, urban fantasy a bit of a boost from, um, you know, a whole new quarter. Um, and another impulse was to reflect my own personal community, uh, which I rarely see in, um, in fiction. And when I see it in fiction, it's, it's generally <laughs> almost always by a writer I know personally, <laughs> because our community is very small. But, um, you know, the, the Asian American um, literary arts community is, um, it, you know, it's very big in the Bay Area, and, but it's, but it's, it's a, it's a tight, tight knit community. And, um, and I really wanted to see it reflected in just a really fun genre novel for a change. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, instead of always in memoir or auto auto fiction, and um, and then uh, a third impulse for this was to reflect the activist community and to normalize it because um, at the time that I first started writing this, it was the the second term Obama's second term, and um, the left was really kind of falling apart, and activism you know had kind of had kind of like was kind of flag- one on the one hand was kind of flagging after um, after Obama's election and on the other hand um, had been given this whole new lease on life by o- the Occupy movement and you know and then then all of the movements that followed the um, the um, Black Lives Matter movement and um, Dakota Access Pipeline um, protests and so on and so forth and you know just something new every year and I thought you know, this is this is the world that I live in, the world of activism, the world of social justice. This is the world I work in and have for decades. And you also rarely see this in fiction, much less in genre, fun genre fiction. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to put all of this stuff into just like a really fun, um, action-packed genre book. And that's that's how I came up with the idea of Monkey Around. I mean, it's a lot, but that's how it, <laughs> that's where it came from. It didn't come all at once either. So <laughs> no, it didn't. It didn't. Bits and pieces. So you want to talk about um about the the work that you do? Sure. Sure. So um I moved to the Bay Area in, in the late 90s and I came here specifically to uh work with Asian American communities. Mm-hmm. Um I had like many, many, uh, I'm mixed race, I'm Chinese and white. And um, like many, many Asian Americans of my uh, generation, I I grew up in in towns that were cities that were not very heavily populated with Asians. I I grew up in suburbs, I grew up surrounded by by white people and um, very disconnected from my roots. Mm -hmm. And I moved to the Bay Area to find an Asian American community and to find a a multiracial communities that um, where I could feel, you know, that I could disappear into where where I could feel at home and not constantly feel like I was sticking out like a sore thumb. And when you look at the, the, you know, the people who are active in, in it, social justice um, 
activist communities, um, particularly Asian American activist communities, about half of them grew up in Asian American communities and about half of them grew up outside of Asian American communities and felt that they stuck out like a sore thumb. And I'm one of those people. So I moved to the Bay Area and I immediately got involved in um, cultural institutions, arts and media organizations um, that were you know, organized and run by Asian Americans for Asian Americans to give Asian Americans a voice. And of course, in the late 90s, there were very, very few Asian American um, artists and, and um, makers who uh, had any voice in mainstream media, any voice in media at all. And, and so promoting the voices of um, Asian American artists and, um, and media makers were, was really, really important. And uh, so I, so that's where I started out and, um, and I got involved in more and more organizations. At one point in the early 2000s, I got together with a group of uh, journalists and activists and, and we co-founded Hyphen Magazine, which is an Asian American, uh, a national Asian American news and culture magazine, which we called Stealth Progressive. Um, it was supposed to be fun and glossy and candy colored, but underneath all of that have a very progressive message, which is also uh, something that fed into uh, my desire to write Monkey Around, to, to, to have it be a stealth progressive organ, so to speak. And uh, uh, then later on, I, uh, I got involved in, um, in other uh, work and other areas, you know, some anti-war protesting um, later on. And um, uh, I worked for a while in um, micro, micro entrepreneurship with low in low income communities. And then later when I became disabled myself, I got involved in, in, and I'm still currently involved in disability justice. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of, there's, you know, there's a lot of streams in, uh, in the, the larger flow of uh, social justice work. And, and I've been involved in more than one of them. Wow, well, yeah. that's really good. Is that one of the reasons um, that you decided to write about the Monkey King myth? Well, the Monkey King was my favorite as a kid. And uh, and that's not a surprise. Monkey King is a lot of kids' favorite. Monkey King is probably the, um, the best known mythological legendary figure in the East Asian cultural sphere. And there are just a bajillion adaptations of the novel, the Monkey King novel called Journey to the West, which I mentioned in, in Monkey Around. It's a 16th century Chinese novel um, that sort of codified the story of the Monkey King. And there have been like a bajillion adaptations of Journey to the West in Chinese, Japanese, and Korean, Korean I think as well, um, as well as um, more recently in, in Australia and the United States, there's just been so many adaptations in, in, in film and TV and manga and, and yada, yada, yada. And in the States, even though, um, I don't know if you've seen Into the Badlands. No, I haven't, um, no. The television show, very, very loose adaptation of um, Journey to the West. Even though we had Into the Badlands, it, Journey to the West is almost completely unknown in the United States and the Monkey King is almost completely unknown in the United States. Although in the last decade or so, because there's been so much interest in East Asian pop culture, he's become better known, the characters become better known. But you know, you walk down the street, even in San Francisco, you walk down the street and grab a person and say, you know who the Monkey King is? Chances are, you know, like 50-50, they'll never have heard of him ever. Okay. So, um, but I love the Monkey King and I love a number of things about the Monkey King. And so when I thought like, what 
what kind of supernatural creature is my main character going to be? That was just the first thing that popped into my mind. She's got to be a female monkey king, you know? And, um, and the moment you gender bend something, it just gets so interesting. It's curious because I remember reading the blurb for the book and then thinking, oh, it's the same myth as Dragon Ball. Because I yes. don't know if in the United States is very known, but in Portugal, I'm Portuguese. Mm-hmm. It's super known. Like everyone my generation, I'm 34, mm-hmm. saw Dragon Ball. Like we went yes. from school home to watch Dragon Ball. And it's just so funny the way that they created, you know, they picked up a myth and you watch the series and you have no idea about that part of, of you know, Chinese culture, obviously. You're just, for you, it's just Dragon Ball. Mm-hmm. And then later on, you pick it up. It's like, oh, this is based on a myth and it's based on a manga. And that was definitely for me. Um, mm-hmm. So when I saw that, uh, when I uh, read the blurb, my mind went like, wow, this just brings me so many memories from my childhood. Because it was really, uh-huh. I think it was really one of the most famous um, series in, in Portugal. Yeah. And it was quite popular in the States as well yeah. among certain group of people. Yeah. But again, they, they I don't think um, most of them were aware of the, the background or history. No, I wasn't for sure. I just thought the series was super funny because they always write, especially with the, the, basically, of course, we listen to it in Portuguese. So it wasn't even subtitles because it's for kids, at least the first season. Mm-hmm. And, and they made it super funny as well. And the characters are super interesting. Uh, so yeah, it was kind of funny now to to see the same myth and that that meant so much, even though I I didn't know it was a myth uh, from my childhood in in an urban fantasy novel. Um, what? Why did you yeah. choose San Francisco as the background to this story? Like I said, the impetus to um, to writing the story was to represent my community, my experience, and and so of course it it had to be San Francisco. Um, <laughs> It's that simple. I, it, you know, I have I have other ideas in, in the back burner for um, for fantasies that take place in other cities and other places, but uh, San Francisco is, of course, the place I know best. And um, and this particular story had to be in San Francisco. Without spoilers, do you have a favorite scene in the book? <laughs> um, I I don't really. Um, I I. I wrote this from an outline. Mm-hmm. So I completed the outline and I knew what the entire book looked like before I started writing it. Um, and um, I promised myself when I was writing the outline that I would never write a scene that bored me. Okay. Um, and, um, and that, you know, if I, you know, uh, because before I started writing this book, my writing process was different. I, I didn't outline anything. I would just get an idea, sit down and write. Wow. And, yeah. <laughs> um, and it's a very labor intensive process and it's very energy intensive. It's very difficult to do when you have chronic fatigue syndrome because you have to sit there for hours and hours and hours and, yeah. and just dig it, dig it, dig it, dig, dig. And you do end up writing a lot of, um, a lot of scenes that get you from one place to another place. Mm-hmm. Um, because you can kind of glimpse something through the darkness over there that's bright and shiny, but you have to get, you know, right your way towards that. So, and so, so I you, ended up, you did ended up writing a lot of, yeah, I ended up oh. writing a lot of stuff that, that I did not find particularly interesting, but that got me to places. 
So when I, when I said, all right, I'm going to write this from um, an outline, I'm going to structure this in, in advance, and I'm going to write it scene by scene, I promised myself I was not going to write anything that was boring um, and anything that was, that was a slog. Mm-hmm. And um, so basically there are, you know, there is a lot of, there is connective tissue um, in, in the book. There has to be some connective tissue, but I cut down on the connective tissue as, as much as possible and just, just, just meat as much meat as possible. And as little like gristle <laughs> and tendons as possible. So um, hopefully, uh, hopefully there, there aren't a lot of, um, there, there aren't a lot of places where the, um, the tension or the, or the pace flags in the book. And, uh, and I really enjoyed writing most of the book. So I've been talking with other writers and, and usually we talk about also, you know, being, do they call it like a prancer or an outliner or something like that? It's like basically... pantser, a, pa- a pantser, pantser yeah. or a planner. There's a yeah. planner and a pantser. Yeah, that's it. I kind of, I forgot the words, uh, but, but basically some people really write, they uh, plan everything and other people just, you know, sit down and write whatever comes to their mind. But I also thought, because you're talking about making an outline, and I always thought that when people talk about outline, they do that thing in which you have specific spots in the book that you know what you want to talk about, but then you have to build the bridges mm-hmm. to cross to those places. But you right. did it differently. You actually planned everything more thoroughly than that. Yeah, scene by scene. Every scene was written, you know, the, the arc of every scene was written out in a paragraph. And I, I knew that there, I was, I left out all the connective tissue and I knew that I would have to have transitions. I knew that I would have to explain what happened in between scenes here and there. Um, but I, I did that. And then I went back and cut as much of that out as possible. Oh, yeah. I, I <laughs> don't think, it, yeah. I don't think I've ever heard uh, anyone has ever told me, yeah, I write like this in, in such a like defined way. It's very interesting. I really love yeah. to talk to people about the way that they, they come up with stories and, and the way that they actually plan a story. Because yeah. yeah, for me, I find it, I'm also, I like, I'm a, when I write, I haven't written in a long time, but I usually write, I plan. So I kind of know the end most of the time and bits mm. in the middle that are important. But then, and I think that's one reason why I don't write as much. Like, how do you get there? Right. Like, how do you get to these places? How do you build those bridges? And it's, yeah, it's pretty interesting. I don't think I've ever talked with anyone who actually outlined uh, so detailed, but it's, it's, yeah, it's very interesting because it kind of helps you go to the next scene, I think. Well, I, I, when I was in, um, in college, um, in university, um, I was studying creative writing and I took a class on writing for stage and screen. And, um, God, the difference between writing fiction in the creative writing department and writing for stage and screen in the um, in the theater department was just like night and day because the fiction department, that's where I learned my old process where you get an idea, you just sit down and you dig. Yeah. And, and it's like, there's no, you know, there, there was, there's very little discussion of, of planning. There's very little discussion of plotting. There's very little discussion of structure. It's all about, you know, surface language and, and thematics and da, 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 da. And, um, and then you go to the writing for stage and screen class and it's all structure. It's oh. all scene by scene. You, you write, they teach you to, to go out. You have to go out and buy index cards. And you oh. have to write 
um, one scene on each index card, and then you and then you structure it, and 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 it's and it's all planned out, and it's all there because it has to be highly structured because people are actually going to be performing this. Yeah. So um, it's and it's collaborative, so it so it has to be structured in a way that other people can use it because you're not just writing it and that's it. You're writing it and then handing it off to someone else who's going to use it. So um, so I learned both right at the beginning when I was in my late teens. I learned, I learned both processes and I never used the latter process until I started writing monkey around. And then it came, then it all came back to me, you know, and it was like writing scene by scene and, and writing like that is very cinematic um, mm -hmm. because you, 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 you can think about it cinematic, but you say, well, instead of talking between scene A and scene B, I can just jump cut, you yeah. know? And you can, you can use jump cuts in books now, you know, books have become so cinematic and genre books have become so cinematic. You can use jump cuts and you can use a lot of kind, kind of cinematic transitions if you want to. And I found myself doing that because in a film and in a TV show, you don't have a lot of space to like, blah, 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 blah. You have yeah. to get to the meat of the story. So you just jump from one scene to the next. And, um, it was a real, it was a real interesting lesson for me to, to be able to do that because all the stuff I'd written before that, you know, it was very literary in the sense that, you know, it's, it's not filmable. Yeah. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't, it's not analogous to film. It's not analogous to comic books. It's not analogous to anything else. It is fiction. Yeah. You know, so yeah. It's very interesting. Wow. I wanted to ask like, what was the easiest thing about writing this book and the most challenging the easiest thing was hmm. maybe there wasn't anything easy. I mean, <laughs> no, no. I mean, I, I, I don't think of it as easy. I pro probably think of it as, you know, the, the things that, that flowed the best, yeah. you know, um, the things that flowed the best. Um, you can say the most fun as well. Yeah. Maybe well, the most so, so, some of the most fun things were also the hardest. Um, oh, <laughs> you know, um, yeah, you know, I, I, I actually don't think of things in terms of easy and hard. Um, I just, you know, the, I think, I think the hardest thing was finishing it, you know, um, the last couple I had, I think six full drafts and I think the last two drafts were the hardest. I, I'm a, I'm a perfectionist. So I, I do a lot of drafts for absolutely everything I do. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Um, you suffer, and you mentioned it before, you suffer from chronic fatigue, and um, that led you to consuming urban fantasy, and then mm -hmm. deciding to try your hand at writing it. Would you like yes. to talk about that a little? Sure. Um, so in, uh, I, I, I published a, um, a book under my, my own name, which is Claire Light, J.D. Jang is a um, is a pseudonym that I'm using for this um, because, and I use the two different names because I use two different writing processes and it seemed like they came from two different places. But um, I published a collection of short stories in, at the end of 2009 under Claire Light. And, um, and literally the same month that I published that book, I got sick um, and I never got better. Yeah. And uh, it took two years for me to get a diagnosis, but um, I finally got the diagnosis of chronic fatigue syndrome. And, um, and it took me seven years from when I first got sick to actually get adequate treatment. My doctors were sending me out to all kinds of things. And, and it took me that long to actually find a, a doctor who could give me 
treatment that actually worked. So during that time, I had a lot of um, downtime because one of the things uh, that happens when you have chronic fatigue syndrome is you lose energy and you just don't have enough energy, literally don't have enough energy to get through the day. You can't work a full day. Some people can't even get out of bed. I'm not that bad, fortunately. Um, but you can't work a full day. You can't, um, you can't do anything that, um, that requires physical exertion or mental exertion. Yeah. Uh, including writing. So, um, and reading and that this is the worst part for, for, a you know, a lifelong voracious reader like myself and probably you as well. It's, yeah. um, it's a really, really cruel, cruel trick that you reach a point in the day where your energy is depleted and you can't read anything challenging. So, um, what I found was that, um, I could, you know, pick a genre, any genre, I could pick a genre, um, and binge books in a genre series that were written in the, you know, to the same formula mm-hmm. over and over again. And I'm, I'm open to all kinds of genres, but the one that appealed to me the most at that time was urban fantasy, particularly paranormal detective stories. And I just, I read a lot of those series. Um, and I realized, you know, I, I really, really enjoyed those because they, uh, there's a lot of female centered paranormal detectives in the urban fantasy genre. And they speak very directly to the experience of young women, young or youngish women, you know, women in their, mostly in their Mm thirties who are educated and professional and single living in urban centers. And, uh, and they speak very particularly to power dynamics of women in those situations, their power dynamics with regard to men, their power dynamics with regard to institutions, uh, their power dynamics um, with regard to their gender, their age, their profession, et cetera, et cetera. And, um, and they use the, you know, the, the vampire werewolf tropes to talk about, you know, the, the alpha male, to talk, you know, the <laughs> alpha male leader of a, of a pack kind of yeah. thing. Uh, all of those things talk about these power dynamics and, um, and the tropes that are common in these stories, you know, this woman is the only, she's not the most powerful. There's always a man who's more powerful than she is, but she has a special gift that nobody else has. And, um, and that makes her valuable to everyone around her in various ways. So her weakness is offset by her value. And then of course, there's, there's also the, you know, the, the orphan trope and the, I don't know where I come from trope, which um, also speaks to this, this, um, you know, this, this play between weakness and, um, and essential strength and, and value. So all, you know, all of these things are are playing out in my mind while I'm binging all of these books. And uh, I just, and I just thought, you know, all right, um, I can, and I was also trying to continue writing the way that I'd been writing, and it was becoming increasingly difficult because pantsing is so incredibly energy intensive. And if you yeah. only have an hour's worth of energy that day, you can't pants a story. If you have three hours of energy that day, it's hard to pants a story. And so I finally, after a few years, finally said, you know what, let's try this differently. Let's try to outline something. What am I going to outline? Of course, I'm going to outline uh, urban fantasy. So yeah, that's how that that happened. And do you have any favorites that helped you like during that time? Oh, yeah. Um, So 
my my guilty pleasure and guilty because there are so many problematic tropes involved in this oh, series, okay. but yeah. um, is um, is Patricia Briggs, Mercy Thompson series. Mm-hmm. Um, my non-guilty pleasure, <laughs> um, my non-guilty pleasures are um, uh, particular, my, my, I think probably my favorite non-guilty pleasure is Sean and McGuire's October Day series, mm-hmm. which is also Bay Area. And, uh, but she, she does it differently. Like I, um, I made a point that, Every single place, every single location I use in the Bay Area actually exists, except for the Supernatural Sanctuary, which, of course, does not exist. But um, all of the other locations actually do exist. My mm-hmm. book launch party is going to happen at the place where Maya finds the first dead body. Oh, um, yeah. Cool. <laughs> so, um, and Shauna McGuire's um, October Day series, most of the locations are, are um, kind of twisted versions of real locations but they aren't real locations so um so yeah she did it differently and and that and that also inspired me you know here are the things that I would like to do that you do and here are the things I would like to do that you don't do you know that that kind of inspiration and I you know I also recommend C.E. Murphy's Walker Papers and uh, Ilona Andrews Kate Daniel series uh, Jane Yellow Rock, love that one. Uh, just there's so many. Oh, oh, and and Kitty Vaughn's, um, or not K- Carrie Vaughn's Kitty Norval series. Yeah, great. No, because uh, then uh, then I can leave them uh, for as recommendations for people who would like to maybe get in the genre already like the genre. Yeah. But it's also very funny that you talk about guilty pleasures and non-guilty pleasures because I have the same feeling. For me, guilty pleasures are usually books that are in somehow, in some way problematic. If people are like, oh, that's cheesy or whatever, like, I don't care. That's not a guilty, yeah. I'm not guilty of that. Yeah. I don't I don't feel guilty. Mm-hmm. But yeah, when, when you do talk about problematic books that you know the authors or the book is problematic, that, that there's, that's where the guilty pleasure comes in. Yeah, yeah. You said that you write under the name J.D. Jang. What compelled you to get the pen name and why did you choose that? Well, like I said before, the, I felt very much like when I, when I switched up processes and decided to write a genre to, you know, to speaking very specifically to the tropes of the genre and the general feel of the genre, I felt like it was coming from a different place. And so, you know, I, and, and I immediately thought, you know, I need to, I need to put this under a different name so that my readers know that this is not, it, it's not coming from the same place. The, mm-hmm. the, uh, the stories that I published under Claire Light, I mean, I, I'm, I would be thrilled if people read um, Monkey Around and, and like it and then are curious and want to go read my other stories, but just be prepared. They are very dark and they are very cold universe and they're written completely differently. And uh, somebody who reads Monkey Around and thinks, oh, that was fun and that was, that was refreshing and that was bracing. I want to read something, um, something else by this author is going to be very disappointed <laughs> if, they go to, if they go to Claire Light's work um, and vice versa. You know, I think yeah. somebody who reads, who reads my, my short stories and, um, and thinks, wow, I want to read more of this is going to go to Monkey Around and be like, what is this crap? So, um, so I, you know, I, I want to, I just want, I, I'm not yeah. trying to keep the two identities um, uh, separate in, uh, you know, I, I'm not trying to keep it secret. 
but yeah, I am no, trying, no. trying to keep like the two identities separate in the sense that, you know, if you're the reader of one, you're not necessarily going to want to be the reader of another. And yeah. I want to keep both. And I want to keep Claire Light open for me to write more in that vein in the future. If and when I find the energy to do so again. So it's a nice way to, to separate it. And then people know what they can count when they read under one name or the other, of course. Yes. Would you like to talk about your story as a writer? And maybe maybe you want to go into your story as a reader as well, because you, you just mentioned that you've uh, always read a lot. I've known that I was going to be a writer since I was about eight years old. I mean, really? I started I started really biting down on the reading when I was eight years old. Before that, uh, you know, I would I would read a bit. My parents would read to me. Teachers at school would read to me. I would read a bit on my own. But um, when I was about eight, seven and a half, eight, uh, in, in probably, you know, around third grade, I started picking up middle grade books on my own and just, and from that point on, I basically read two or three books a week until, until I got sick in my forties, mm -hmm. just basically, you know, constantly devouring. And, and that was my life. And until I, I also, again, until I was, um, until I got sick, when I was 40, I watched very little TV. Now I watch tons of TV because <laughs> there, are, there are whole swaths of the day where there's nothing else I can do. But, um, but yeah, I, I watched very little TV and I just, I just read, I just devoured books. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so, and, and I also tried writing my first story when I was eight. It didn't get very far, but I, I did write my first novel when I was 15. And, um, and the two have always gone hand in hand for me. Um, you know, loving stories and wanting to make them mm -hmm. um, just always went hand in hand. And um, uh, which is, which is interesting because uh, not everything I love is something that I have to do. Um, so, sometimes I, I kind of feel like I have to try my hand at it, but I, but then, then, you know, after trying my hand at it, I'm like, oh, that's not for me. And I can put it away and still love the thing, you know, like mm -hmm. with music or with, with visual art, yeah. but, um, but with, with, writing with books you know that's that's been so essential to my life for so long it's it's hard it's hard to to dig out what, how that starts you know mm -hmm. yeah it's always been present yeah you co-founded as you mentioned an asian american magazine called hyphen you published a collection of short stories called slightly behind and to the left and you also have written essays uh, do you have a favorite medium um, novels, definitely. Yeah. And, and I, and I have to, I have to say, you know, I, I finally figured this out in my forties <laughs> as I was writing monkey around. Um, I should have been writing novels from the beginning. I, I just said, I wrote my first novel when I was 15. I wish someone had told me, I'm telling everybody now, I wish someone had told me then if you're writing novels, if you started out writing novels, you want and you only read novels keep writing novels don't take that 20-year detour that i took into writing short stories because the formal education in creative writing forces fiction writers to write short stories oh. i don't really read short stories i don't really enjoy short stories that much and i should never have been writing them i i i, I limped along in writing short stories i managed to complete five or six short stories total in about 20 years mm -hmm. because I don't like writing. Them. Oh. 
So yeah, no, I definitely, um, I, I'm definitely a novelist, no question. Is it because it is a more complete story or what pulls you to it? Uh, because you can sink yourself into it and stay there for an extended period of time. Mm -hmm. Short stories, I don't dislike short stories for themselves. What I dislike about short stories is you commit and then it's over like that. Um, and it's like, you know, if, if you don't commit, then you don't enjoy the experience. And once and you commit to the characters, to the situation, and then boom, five seconds later, it's over. Mm -hmm. So, um, that, yeah, that's <laughs> what a I bummer. Find yeah, what I find fun about short stories, even though I do prefer novels, is how much is out of the paper and you can imagine it yourself. But on yes. the other hand, I've had I've read books that um, are a bit too short and they are presented as, as novels, but there's so much left to the imagination and so much left to tell that it does leave me frustrated. Yes. So yes. that has happened before, and I I completely understand that. But yeah, because you kind of you go into the story, you start getting interested of these characters, and then it's over before yeah. you know enough. <laughs> yeah, and and so and there are there are any number of short stories that I absolutely love because yeah. they are perfect as short stories. Mm -hmm. um, but then there are a number of other short stories that I would love if they were novels, yes. if there were novellas, because, you know, they drag me in and they don't give me enough, you know? Yeah. So. Yeah, of course. Yeah. It's kind of frustrating. It's like, no, I want more and there isn't more. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Is there going to be a, a book tour online or otherwise? I believe there's going to be a blog tour. My uh, publicist told me there was going to be a blog tour, <laughs> but no, there is not going to be a book tour. Um, I think as a, as a first time novelist in the middle of a pandemic, that was just never going to be, <laughs> yeah, never going to happen. <laughs> that's true. Like I started interviewing people this year only. Uh, so a lot yeah. of the times I'm just asking, what is it like to put a book out during the pandemic? <laughs> and I stopped asking because I was always asking this, but uh, yeah, especially debut novels, it must be so difficult to miss the opportunity to go on tour and to talk to readers and, you know, to go to bookstores. But obviously things are, yeah, are going to take longer to get better than, than I think people were expecting. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm actually strongly considering, um, my uh, my book launch party, uh, which is on Thursday, was supposed to be hybrid in in person and also streamed online. And I'm strongly considering just talking to the to the um, the organizers tomorrow and just saying let's make it completely online because yeah. I don't know if I even want to encourage anybody to come out right now. Yeah, you know? I totally understand. Yeah, for your your own security, but also other people's, yeah. and to kind of go against the current of people who are now kind of acting as if the pandemic is over. Yeah. And, 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 and Worldcon, you know, I'm, I'm going, you know, I'm going to Worldcon. It was supposed to be in August. Yeah. And um, which is, you know, I'm releasing my book in August. Perfect. And, um, and then they pushed it back to December and I've just been flip-flopping. Like, do I want to go to DC or do I want to do, cause it's also going to be hybrid. So I yeah. could stay at home and go to Worldcon or I could go to DC and go to Worldcon. And it's like, you know, it's, it's like those, those kinds of choices, which you would never have to make in an ordinary year. But mm -hmm. on the other hand, what's really great about it is you would never have to make them because there's no option exactly. to do this online. Yeah. And, and, and disabled people have been, you know, feasted 
yep. absolutely feasted with cultural events that are all online, that have all been online for the past 18 months. Yep. Um, and that's amazing. And I don't want that to stop. So no, exactly. Like I, I host two book clubs and the bookstore I work at for, for them, I will I host it for them, but they also have other poetry meetings. And a few weeks ago we started because um, regulations kind of changed and we started offering the possibility of it being in person, but we also mm -hmm. continue to offer the online. And even I think for anyone that is like, you know, far away from the places where the things are happening or maybe don't have the the possibility to pay for a whole ticket because usually online the tickets are also you know cheaper because it's online i think mm -hmm. it just opens so many possibilities for everyone disabled people but but in general everyone yeah um yeah. and i people so who, hope, can't afford to travel yeah yeah i so hope it continues even though of course the reason why this is the way it is it's not the reason it should be it shouldn't be necessary for a pandemic to happen for you know accommodations to be made to people, mm. but I do hope it kind of changes people's minds in in that sense. Yeah. So yeah. So okay. So no book tour for now. No book tour. Yeah. <laughs> but maybe 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 next year <laughs> if things maybe, maybe get in better. the future. <laughs> um, yeah. And are you working on something at the moment? So yeah, I'm I'm in draft two of Monkey Two. I'm calling it. Working title is Monkey Two <laughs> Primate Boogaloo, but um, that's a that's a joke on. Um, that's very funny a, though. <laughs> yeah, it's there. There was a there was a, a film series, a, a short film series called Breaking. Was it called Breaking? Um, it was what, during the um, the break dancing craze in the eighties. And there was a there was a movie called Breaking, and then they did Breaking Two Electric Boogaloo. Wow! And so people make fun of that a lot. So that's my thing. Anyway, um, but uh, Monkey Two, I'm I'm keep trying to write draft two, and I keep getting stalled by, um, you know, release book release yeah, stuff. So yeah. So after this coming week, this coming week is like a big thing, and then after this coming week, I could probably settle down a little bit and get back to Monkey Two. But, is it gonna um, be a series are there going to be I, two or three books or i'm hoping it will be a series i'm hoping it'll be um, a bit longer it could be i don't think i could finish the story in three books but i could get it done in four five or more okay uh, it depends it depends on because uh, i only have a one book deal so it depends on the publisher it depends on the audience you know we'll see if if you guys like it you know, buy the it. book and tell all your friends. <laughs> review it. <laughs> yeah, review it. Yeah, that also helps, especially uh, in pre-orders pre and um, and reviews before it's out. Yeah. Where can people find you online? ClaireLight.org. C L A I R E L I G H T dot O R G. Uh, I also have dot net but I think mm -hmm. I'm, I'm using .org primarily right now. Um, oh, and I'm on the, Twitter. In the show's notes. Sorry, sorry. Just uh, just want to make sure that they, people know that I will leave it on the show notes so they can ah, check it there. Great. Um, I'm also on Twitter uh, under S-E-E-L-I-G-H-T and on um, Insta, S-E-E-L-I-G-H-T 44. So sea light, right? Was it sea light? Yes, yeah, sea light. Now, this is the last question of the podcast, always, and I would like you to recommend an all-time favorite book 
and a book you would just recommend right now. Okay. All-time favorite book. Whenever I think of all-time favorite books, the one that always pops into my head is um, Garcia Marquez's 100 Years of Solitude, mm -hmm. which is a stone cold classic for a reason. It's an absolutely beautiful, um, absolutely beautiful book full of strangeness and familiarity. Um, the, the surface, the language surface is gorgeous, um, but there's incredible depths and it has a structure that you cannot see until you finish the book. And it's, it's surprising and uh, delightful in so many ways. And I cannot recommend it enough. And, and the one thing that everybody says about it, which drives me nuts is you get so confused because everybody has the same name in the book. I never had a problem. I never had a problem with keeping people, you know, up, keep telling apart the different characters with the same name. So don't worry about that. Just read the book. It's a beautiful, beautiful book. Yeah, I've, I've read Marquez before, but I've read uh, the um, A Love in Time of Cholera. And I've mm. read one that I don't know the name because I read it in Portuguese, but it's something like uh, A Death Announced. So I've never heard of uh, I've never read. of a Death Foretold. Yeah. Yes, that's, thank you so much. That's exactly yeah. that. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and um, yeah, uh, uh, but one, a lot of people talk about 100 Years of Solitude. And I, yeah, I do, I do kind of wonder, because I do have some trouble. I, in English, a lot of authors use last names rather than first names. Mm -hmm. And in general, I think, but in, in the Netherlands as well, like people usually use last names. In Portugal, people mostly use first names. So if I'm referring to someone, it's usually by the first name. And when I write ah. about characters, is the first name. So I do have some trouble sometimes when it's like, you know, there's, there's, there's two Mr with the same name because they're father and son. So, yeah. but I do still want to read uh, 100 Years of Solitude and uh, yeah, kind of, let's see how that is going to go. Yeah. And um, a recommendation that you, yeah, for right now? <laughs> uh, the, one, the one that I am like waiting for with bated breath is the third and final book in the Greenbone Saga by Fonda Lee. Um, and I've been talking about this book all over the place, these books all over the place, but um, this is a wonderful fantasy series, um, a trilogy uh, called The Greenbone Saga. It's Jade City, Jade War, and Jade Legacy is coming out this fall. And it, it takes place, I, it's actually an urban fantasy, although it takes place in a secondary world. The secondary mm -hmm. world is so close to our own that it might as well just be urban fantasy. Um, and it's about this former um, Asian colony that has um, magical jade that gives you superpowers. And um, only the people, only the indigenous people of this colony um, can actually wear the jade and use the superpowers without going completely nuts. Wow. Um, and so they, you know, they learn martial arts and they, they get to do basically... Hong Kong wire foo martial arts. Um, and they're, they're, they're in gangs and the gangs fight each other over control of the city and over control of the jade. And it's, it's just this amazing, it's like, it's like Hong Kong wuxia movies meets The Godfather. It's, it's an amazing series and I highly recommend it to everybody. Okay, I will leave it in the show's notes as well. Uh, JD, thank you so much for coming to A Story of Swords. Thank you so much for having me.
Thank you so much for having me. You're very welcome. <laughs> I always do that at least once, once per per session of using these things. I always like because I'm always waving my hands around. Take them off. <laughs> but we'll try. We'll try that again. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. <laughs> you can access today's show's notes via my pod page which you can find along with all of my social media links at linktree slash Karina Pereira. In there, you'll also find a link to a Story of Sorts playlist available on Libro.fm, containing the audiobooks recommended by our guests, which will be updated as the show progresses. If you'd like to give Libro.fm a try, you can use the code Story of Sorts at checkout to get two books for the price of one. This offer is valid for new Libro.fm members in the US and Canada. Libro.fm is an audiobook platform which allows you to buy audiobooks directly from an indie bookstore. Check them out. If you have enjoyed this episode, please consider supporting a story of sorts on Patreon. Patreon is a platform which allows you to contribute monthly to the podcast in exchange for extra content, such as early access to episodes, a shout-out at the end of an episode and on Instagram, and choosing a theme for me to talk about on the podcast. You can become a patron at patreon.com slash a story of sorts. I'd also be very grateful if you would simply leave a review and subscribe on your podcast platform of choice. As usual, I'll be back in two weeks with a new interview. I'll talk to you then. And thank you for listening. Thank you.